Welcome back, everyone. True Crime on Easy Street. It is a beautiful day on Easy Street. And we're stuck inside this studio. I can see the sky from the studio. We have this beautiful window. And that window, I mean, it's crystal clear through there. Look at that sky. Beautiful. Nice day. It's always a beautiful day on Easy Street. Let's hurry this shit up and get over (laughs) with it and get out of the door. Scott's (laughs) Scott's got to get back to the bar. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to Jake's. Wait, we can't say Jake's anymore. You done broke your rule. Too many times. We've already plugged them on this show. Yeah, so tell us, uh, Katie, tell us a little bit about the, the weekend happenings on Easy Street. That everybody missed, and we can be sad about it. Yeah. Yes, we had a good time. Um, Friday night, we had a solo act, Trent Avery. We had a good, good solid Friday. And Saturday, we were, it's packed. We had Brad Cornelius. Brad man. always brings yeah. a big crowd. Always makes the power go out. Yeah, every time Brad plays, the power goes out, and it did again uh, last night, apparently. That's a party. The first time, it was out the whole night. Yes, that was no good. That was, the whole town was dark that night. Yeah. That was a weird the night. night. The lights went out in Georgia. Yeah, and Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, yeah, power just flickered last night. If anybody was up and that storm that rolled through. I remember the storm. It caught us. It didn't bother me at all. The Our alarm system, when it when the power blinks, our alarm system then goes off. I mean, it just beep, 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 Like beep, when you it know. comes back on or while yes. the power is out. No, it, when it comes back on. Got it. And then, so you have to get up and Ugh. put in all these codes and... Just breaking in. Why don't you just leave some stuff on the patio for burglars to take, and then you can turn off the burglar alarm. I don't have to worry about it. But our cat was also, she was upset. Does not like storms. So she was raising cane. We have like a a closed-in porch on the back, like a sunroom. Yeah, sure. And that's where she lives. Okay. But we let her in the house all the time. And she sleeps out out there, and she was not having it. So okay, KT, that was a pretty safe place for her to be, though. I've been to your house. Oh, she's and completely it's safe. Safe there. She's just a total, okay. a total baby. Got it. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a word there that we're gonna we're not gonna use it. <laughs> and she's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright, and I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. So. While we are giving some love and light to our sponsor, uh-huh. one of our sponsors, but our main sponsor, yeah, our namesake, True Crime on Easy Street, mm-hmm. what's going on this weekend? This coming weekend? Oh, yeah. We that's have... a good question. As Katie grabs for her phone. Oh, she's got it. Solid Google calendar here. We've got <laughs> uh, karaoke, as always, on Thursday. Yeah. And Taylor Cromer's on Friday night and Last Band Standing on Saturday. Okay, Those guys fun. are good. That's fun. Yeah. Oh, well, I just saw two. The day this episode drops, Wednesday night, it looks like Shane's playing. Oh, in the corner? In yes. the corner of the bar? Mm-hmm. In his little That's always a piano fun. It's where he belongs. That is a- In the corner. That's a- <laughs> Unlike Baby. Yeah. yeah. Unlike Baby. I think Katie has seen that movie. Oh, yes. Everybody know, puts I've Shane seen, in the corner. I've seen Dirty Dancing <laughs> nine million times. That I've seen that movie enough times I could have seen other movies that I hadn't <laughs> seen, but I just kept been re-watching that, that one. one. Yeah. yeah. Over and over and over. So that'll be, that's always a fun sing-along night when Shane's playing yes. in the corner bar there. So that's I will fun. be taking a final, so I will not be there, but Ooh. y'all have fun. Oh, she's we not a lawyer go. yet, but no, she's working on I'm it. Trying. Yeah, we got to go have enough fun for Katie and her friend Brooke. He's also in law yes. school. We'll I'll do what I can, but I'm not making any promises. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I have no idea what we're talking about this week. I literally just 
am walking into the studio blind today. Total right. dummy today. Yeah, completely. All right. So guys, what we're talking about today takes place, it's it's an airline thing. And so I thought it might be a good idea to come up with some sort of uh, inspirational quote, something okay. about flying before we get into the story. And so I was looking around and I, I didn't, I'm not really sure how you guys are going to, I don't know how this one's going to work. Okay. No. You guys remember uh, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy from Saturday Night Live I back do. in the day? Yes. Okay, so I found one that is vaguely related to flying, and so I couldn't find anything else that I really liked, so we're going to do this one. Okay. So here's the quote. This is the Deep Thought by Jack Handy. I got it, yeah. Okay. If I could be a bird, I'd be a flying purple people eater, because then people would sing about me, and I could fly down and eat them, because I hate that song. Okay. <laughs> oh man. I, That's our light moment. I don't hate that song. Yeah. I don't love it. Jack Handy does. Jack <laughs> I guess if you played enough times in a row. I'm guessing. All right. Well, All right. that's sort of like flying. All right. So we got the light moment out of the way. And Ooh. now we'll get into the today's story. Okay. So we're talking about today the uh the vanishing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. At a quarter of one on the quiet moonlit night of March the 8th, 2014, a Boeing 777 operated by Malaysia Airlines took off from Kuala Lumpur headed for Beijing. That's a, that's a big word, Scott. Mm, I know. I can't good. believe I got through that the first time. As far as you know, that's the first time. Yeah, exactly. Katie is a terrific editor. <laughs> Uh, the, the flight, the flight climbed to its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. Now we've already said that it's MH. That means Malaysia airlines and 370 was the flight number. The first officer was 27 years old. His name was Farik Hamid. He was going to be a qualified pilot on a triple seven after this flight. This is oh, his this last training flight. This was the one. This was the okay. last one. All right. The guy who was going to be his trainer, the pilot who was going to be his trainer on this flight was a man named Zahari Ahmad Shah, 53 years old, one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines. We'll get back to him later. Okay. Uh, in the cabin, there were 10 flight attendants, all Malaysian, so a 12-person counting the pilots, Malaysian air crew. Okay. So this it, is a big crew, huh? Big crew. 227 passengers on the plane. Most of them Chinese passengers. Okay. 14 nations represented on the flight at all, uh, including uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, France, the United States, Ukraine, Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Russia, and Taiwan. And I skipped a couple, but uh, an international flight by all definitions. But most from China. Most from China. Okay. And the plane wasn't full. The plane holds about 300 people, so 227 passengers. So there are empty seats on this plane. Man, I love that. Yeah. I love when I get on a plane and there's empty seats. You yeah. can spread out. Oh, last time I got on a plane and there was an empty seat by us, we had to deboard the plane. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I came back from Vegas once years ago on a plane that was mostly empty and I got a whole row to myself. And oh, I that's, I've had that before. Raised all the armrests and slept for four hours oh, on the fantastic. way home. And I needed it after that weekend in Vegas. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. yeah. That flat home from and I just want to. I just want to weigh in on this issue because this is an issue. If you get on a plane and you have a middle seat, mm -hmm. and you are thinking about asking someone who doesn't have a middle seat to switch with you, don't do it. No, yes. 
that is not a fair trade. Oh. Just shut up. Yeah. Ride in your middle seat. Yeah. I don't care who you're sitting by. Look earlier. Where next the time. rest of your family is. That's not a fair trade. Mm. Drop it and ride. Yeah. If you're trying to trade seats, you trade down. Yes, you trade down. Like, mm-hmm. hey. And if someone asks you and you have an aisle or a window seat and they're in a middle seat and they ask you to trade, you don't have to trade. No. That doesn't make you a jerk. No. Don't do it. They'll try to make you feel like a jerk, but they're it doesn't the, make you one. They're the jerk for asking you. Yeah. I for totally whatever agree. reason they give you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. All yeah. right. I'm sorry. Soapbox. No, I'm glad gone. you did. That was, okay. yeah, it needed to be said. Uh, so up in the cockpit of uh, MH370, First Officer Farik was flying the airplane, which was a standard setup in, for Malaysia Airlines. And Zahari was operating the radio. That was standard. At 1.01 a.m., Zahari radioed that the plane had leveled off at 35,000 feet. Everything's going normal so far. Uh, seven minutes later at 108, the flight crossed the coastline of the, uh, of the nation of Malaysia, headed across the South China Sea in a southeasterly direction towards Vietnam. Okay. On its way to Beijing, China. Okay. Still flying at 35,000 feet, which is where it's supposed to be. Okay. 11 minutes later at 120, just as the airplane closed in on the start of its entrance into Vietnamese airspace, the jurisdiction of the Vietnamese, and, and that's in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, the controller at Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, where the flight originated from, radioed to the flight and said, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh at a certain radio frequency. Good night. Oh, this is standard. Yep. You're done. I'm pa- uh, warm handoff. Here yes. you go. Okay. And Zahari answered, good night, Malaysian 370. That would be the last thing anybody ever heard from MH370. Oh, okay. That's eerie. The pilots never checked in with Ho Chi Minh. And they never answered any subsequent calls to try and raise them on the radio. I mean, they were right there. That was going to be the next thing they did, right? Right where they were. My gosh. Five seconds after MH370 crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol on their radar representing its transponder, which is a device on every airplane that tells you the number of the flight and the speed and the, uh, the fuel amount and a lot of information about the flight, disappeared off of the radar in Vietnam. Hmm. How does that Disappeared. Happen? Just disappeared. The only way that can happen is for somebody to turn off the transponder in the cockpit, okay. as far as we know. Okay. Unless the plane explodes in midair and we know. And then that. I'm going to tell you why we know that didn't happen. Okay. All right. This was at 1.21 a.m., 39 minutes after takeoff. So think about, you guys have flown before. Think about the the 40th minute of the flight that you're in. That's usually about the time the cart is finally coming down the aisle. You're finally going to get something to drink, maybe some peanuts to snack on. Oh, yeah. You're just getting comfortable. You're getting in good. Settling in for what's going to be a six-hour flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. It's a long flight. Long flight. Anything more than three hours and I'm I don't yeah. I don't want I to don't go. prefer it. Yeah. yeah. I really don't want to be there. So when that happened, when the transponder blipped and it disappeared, the Kuala Lumpur air traffic controller didn't see it because it's off of his radar, no pun intended anyway. He's already handed off to Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. Yeah, he said good night. Yes. 
And they and, said good night, and so he's good. And the Vietnam, uh, the controllers in Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City are supposed to wait no longer than five minutes after a plane doesn't check in after it's been handed to their airspace before they reach out to wherever it was previously and say, hey, where's your airplane? Okay. But for whatever reason, 18 minutes passed mm-hmm. before the Vietnamese noticed that MH370 was not on the radar where it was supposed to be. Four more hours elapsed before anybody thought to start looking for it. What? Four hours. Did the, did the Vietnamese reach out to Malaysia? Yes, they did. And what did Malaysia say? They waited four hours. They waited four hours. Yeah. It, 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 that period of time in the story of MH370 was a time of confusion and incompetence. Uh, it would be determined least. later. Yeah, at the very least. This is highly incompetent. 6.32 is when the plane is supposed to land in Beijing. That's when, when the plane doesn't get there when it's supposed to. 6.32 a.m. Then everybody hits the panic button. Yes, it's an overnight red-eye flight that leaves at midnight and lands in Beijing at 6.32 a.m. And we don't hit the panic Local button time until... Until it doesn't land. Wow. Yeah. So, the search... Begins at that point at 6.30 that morning. And they're looking in the South China Sea, which is where it lost contact, where it's supposed to be when it disappeared, where it was last when it was on the radar. In the Vietnamese airspace. Just into Vietnamese airspace in the middle of the South China Sea. So the, the search begins to take place there. But within a matter of days, it's going to be realized, revealed, that the Malaysian Air Force was tracking the plane after it disappeared from the radar screen. And later they will say, well, it wasn't, it was a civilian flight. It wasn't harming anyone. It wasn't headed for a major city. So we just watched it go across our radar screen until it was gone and didn't do anything about it. And I'm sure that they see that a lot, right? They do not. Oh, they don't? No, they do not. This what? is not something that happens. What happened is, at 1.21 a.m., somebody in the cockpit turned off the transponder and turned hard to the west. Within, within the two-minute period from the time that the plane was supposed to be handed off from Malaysian air traffic control to Vietnamese air traffic control, it disappeared and a decision was made. Yes, thank you, Katie, to do something that wasn't supposed to be done. So they knew that. They it was almost The Malaysian as Air if Force it did, it turns w- out, but nobody else did. Waited. Well, uh, whoever in the cockpit did this knew to to ch- check base was experienced with, enough with, yeah. to know and say good night when he was uh and then, in the shadows, mm-hmm. so to speak, mm-hmm. on the radar system. And then turn. Yeah. And then the Malaysian what are they called? Their military, the Malaysian Air Force. Okay, yeah, they see. They saw it on their radar. They see the plane turning, turn and and come back towards home, more or less. Oh, it's turning around and coming back towards Malaysia. Okay, it flies across the peninsula of Malaysia. Okay, and then off eventually off of their radar screens, but they don't tell anybody that for days. They let the search take place in the South China Sea, where they know the plane is not. And there's, there's plenty of speculation about why the Malaysian Air Force would do that. Maybe they don't want other uh, uh, countries in the region or anywhere in the world, for that matter, to know how good their military radar systems are. Mm. 
That's that's the concern, and and one of the theories about why they kept their mouth shut for a week. And I'm and I'm thinking, who's on that plane? Who is, who is the special person on the plane? That's there's that? some speculation about that as well, and we'll get to okay. that. Okay, yeah, right. for sure. Okay. So, what is immediately apparent to everyone is that it, this is not a standard case of hijacking. No. And it didn't seem to be an accident. It didn't seem to be a pilot suicide event, not like anybody had ever encountered before, but for whatever reason, it was missing. Now, there are families on four continents who are devastated by the fact that their plane is missing. Their their relatives are gone. And simply the idea that a sophisticated machine with all of its modern instruments and communications techniques, and uh, it just couldn't vanish. Yeah, that's a big plane. It couldn't just disappear. But it seems like it kind of did. All right. Yeah. And I've got to skip over something that I have to come back to. I feel like um, the military folks know a little more than they're telling. Hang on to that. Yes. Okay. Because they've just sort of, oh, by the way, yeah, we saw it. Yeah. You know. Well, despite the fact that the Malaysian Air Force didn't want anybody to know what they knew, it didn't take too long for the information about what exactly had happened, or at least where MH370 was headed, mm-hmm. to come to light. Because it turns out that even if you're the pilot in the cockpit and you turn off every single thing that you can that communicates with the outside world that you have access to in the cockpit, there is still at least one device on a standard commercial airliner that a lot of pilots don't even know about. And that even if you do, you've got to get down in a very special area of the plane to turn it off. And a lot of people, most pilots, the few that I've seen interviewed on documentaries, don't know where that is in the equipment bay. And this, sure enough, was not turned off. And what it is, it's a, um, there's a a British satellite in a geostationary orbit in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So it doesn't move. It stays in the same place. And any airliner that's in that area of the ocean that it covers can communicate with that satellite with a transponder that's located on the top of the airplane. And what it does, it, it controls like the electric, uh, the, the entertainment system inside. If you want to watch TV or satellite images, if you want to communicate with somebody or if, if the plane wants to send information about its performance back to headquarters, this satellite is how you do it. But even if all of those individual uh, indicators have been shut off in the cockpit, the plane still communicates with that satellite. It's called a handshake. Mm. It just reaches out and says, hey, I'm still here. Uh, yeah. Even if it's not transmitting any of the information, mm. if it's all been shut off, it still says, hey, I'm here. So it did that. It did that a total of seven times in the next six hours after the plane disappeared from the radar in the middle of the South China Sea. So how far away from this do they have to be for it to shake hands? Well, the, the satellite is 22,000 miles up in the sky. So it, it covers a huge It area. covers, you know, half the planet. Gotcha. Almost. So it's not. That area of the ocean, Africa and the Indian Ocean and, mm-hmm. and uh, 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 Southern Asia. So it's not, the, it's not a concentrated area. No, it's just okay. one gotcha. big satellite that's covering this so entire area. So it did that area. seven times. Over the course of the next six hours, it did that seven times. Is that normal? Yes. Okay. But what it indicated to folks when they started to look at this information was that the plane didn't crash in the South China Sea. So that search 
is not going to turn up anything. So someone on the plane has shut off everything except this one thing that can't be shut that off. That can't be shut off, yeah. And maybe this person, whoever it was, didn't know that. That's some of the speculation. That mm-hmm. The one thing that got left on was only because they didn't know that it was on. To begin they didn't with. know, yeah. Because otherwise it seems like this flight is trying to disappear. Yeah. Yeah. So without going into the tech, the, the technology that this, they used with the satellite to figure out where this airplane was, that's what they did. There's a couple of different uh, ways how far away the signal is when it leaves the plane and hits the satellite and comes back. And if that amount of time changes in the next handshake, then you can plot on a map based on the distance that plane is away from your satellite, roughly where it is. Okay. And it takes a little bit of time because it could have gone north or it could have gone south based on the information because it wasn't a, a GPS system. It was just a, a hey, how you doing handshake. Gotcha. So it's, you know, let's say it's 11,000 miles away. Well, it's at least 22,000 miles away. Yeah. Um, but so we know it's on this circle. It could either be here or here. But eventually they find out that it's not the northerly direction mm-hmm. that it might have been on. It was the southerly direction, which is going to take the plane across the vast, empty Indian Ocean until it runs out of fuel. Oh. The last handshake that the satellite received was at 8.19 a.m. And it was the airplane telling the satellite, the engines have stopped running because we're out of gas. Oh, okay. So they get that much information at least. Mm-hmm. That, that was the last thing that they got. They just flew around over the ocean until they ran out of gas? Flew in a straight line due south towards Antarctica, where, which the plane could not reach. All the, the best evidence is that's what happened. Now, there are people who think that it flew north, that it's hidden in a warehouse in Kazakhstan somewhere. There are people who think it's crashed in the South China Sea, mm-hmm. as initially uh, suspected. There are people who think that terrorists grabbed it and are holding on to it to use as a weapon in some future attack. There are people who think that it was hit by a meteorite. There are people who think that it flew into a black hole. And there are people who think that aliens absconded from this planet with that airplane. Well, well, you know, we don't want to get into the alien debate right now. Mm. Yeah, right? Doesn't sound so strange it's, anymore, does it? It's what somebody's saying. Mm. Non-human biologics, isn't that the term we're using now? Yeah, we're using something different now, so it doesn't sound crazy when we say UFO. <laughs> so, why go to Antarctica? Well, nobody nobody was to trying there. to go to Antarctica. Well, you said it was just going in that direction. In the general direction of straight due south. Well, they knew they'd never make it to Antarctica. Who, right. who was, uh, where were they trying to go? I'm, what the heck? Well, the best theory is that they okay. were trying to go to the bottom of the ocean. Oh. As in one person decided he wanted to kill himself. And, and he took everybody. And took with everybody him. with him. But I'll get to that. Okay. But yeah, that's oh. definitely one of the uh, one of the theories. Mm-hmm. Um, less than a week after the plane disappeared, the Wall Street Journal published the first report about those satellite transmissions. Yes. So it took a week for that information to get out. Hey, it didn't fly. It didn't crash in the South China Sea. It either flew due north or due south. We think it was due south because of some other information that we got. These satellite guys. Mm-hmm. And the Malaysian officials 
eventually admitted that that was accurate because they had that satellite, the uh, the military radar. Mm-hmm. They already knew. Okay. Because they saw it. They saw it go by on their radar. Yeah. And they, for whatever reason, they kept their mouths shut for a week until the Wall Street Journal busted them. And they had to say, yeah, that's what the, we saw it. You know, but and you, but you, we didn't have to worry about it because it was, hmm. yeah, it was headed in the wrong direction with 239 people on board, but we let it go. It was fine. So, okay, but yeah, and it's, it's almost beyond saying you got your middle of the night crew. <laughs> yeah. They're maybe not mm-hmm. as good as your 8 a.m. crew. That's not really the case in the military. <laughs> I mean, is well, it? Maybe in Malaysia. <laughs> I don't think what it was. Heck? I don't think it was incompetence at a at a local level. Mm-hmm. I think it was incompetence much higher up the ladder in Malaysia. Okay, Malaysia is a corrupt country. Mm-hmm. They're suspicious of the rest of the world. A lot of Asian countries in that part of the world, I have found out in the last few days, are suspicious of each other. That's one reason why they didn't want to divulge. <clears throat> anything specific from the radar, from the military radar information, because it might give some advantage to their neighbors. That, that, that information doesn't sound like something. It doesn't. Should, I guess they didn't want their, their rivals or their neighbors or whoever they're trying to hide it from to know that they can cover this area. Something like that. So they like can that. secretly yeah. watch, right. maybe. Which I yeah. guess sounds crazy over here because everyone knows we're looking, we're watching everything. Well, you yeah. can sit on a flight here and watch your radar. Mm-hmm. You can pull yeah. it up on the yeah. television behind the seat in front of you right. and watch yourself fly in your direction. Yeah. In the direction you're supposed to go. You can see where, you know, if a you're somewhat water, similar or, satellite, I'm assuming was covering that part of the Indian Ocean because it's in stationary orbit, so it's not moving. Mm-hmm. So it sees the same area of the Earth all day, every day, 24-7. So anything that crosses its path... It sees. It sees it. Yeah. <clears throat> hmm. So on the night that the airplane disappeared, a middle-aged American named Blaine Gibson was uh, sitting in his house in California and he heard about uh, MH370. Gibson, did I say he's a middle-aged man? He's in his 50s, if not his 60s by now. An only child, his mother liked to travel internationally, and she took him with her a lot. So this guy had, uh, he had, what am I trying to say? Uh, The wanderlust, he wanted wanted to see the world. He'd been to over 170 countries around the world when this happened. Yeah. He had been to uh, the jungles of Guatemala to try and figure out what happened to the Mayan civilization, he had looked for the Ark of the Covenant in the mountains of Ethiopia. He printed up cards identifying himself that he handed out. He was an adventurer, an explorer, a truth seeker. He wore a fedora. One article said, like Indiana Jones, I have seen a picture of him. I would argue that he wears a fedora like John Goodman, not Indiana Jones. (laughs) Okay, so he's not, no Indiana Jones is he. He's not swinging from any ropes. Okay. Not more than once. Oh my. So like I said, the truth begins to emerge pretty quickly about what really happened, or at least where the plane did not go. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And so the searches focus on, they move the search to the, uh, the Indian Ocean. The Australians get involved because they're the closest nation. Malaysia doesn't really have a, a search and or sea search and rescue team, but Australia does. Okay. So Australia gets involved in this area and Blaine Gibson starts to think, you know, everybody's looking in the bottom of the ocean. 
I wonder how long it's going to take. If they're right about where this plane ended up in the south in the Indian Ocean, the southern Indian Ocean, how long is it going to be before pieces of it start to wash on shore mm-hmm. somewhere in the Indian Ocean? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, remember I said that Blaine Gibson likes to travel. He does. And he doesn't have a job. He's got yeah. an inheritance from his, his father was a, a state Supreme Court justice in California for 25 years. His mother was a professor. I'm sorry, she was a law student. She was a law student. Um, she was a lawyer, I guess. It said she was a graduate of Stanford Law School and an ardent environmentalist. Okay. I assume if you're a law school graduate, that makes you a lawyer, but whatever. That's the way it was written. That's the- right. Okay. Yeah. So but anyway, maybe, so he didn't have a job. Licensed. I was say, it doesn't sound like she practiced law. Yeah. Okay. This guy's in his 50s or 60s. He doesn't have a job he never has. He travels the world with mom and dad's money that they and, left him. And let's just say this. If you're married to, uh, what, what is he? What is the, what's the dad? Uh, a state Supreme Court chief justice in California. For tw- over 25 years? Yeah. yeah. She didn't need to work. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Some people walk in the sunshine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we this can, guy did. So, some people, as as we are, can only see it from the window. Yeah. Uh, right? <laughs> Today in the studio. Hey, nice callback. That was good. <laughs> Speaking of walking in sunshine, Katie, uh, Blaine Gibson decided that since everybody else was looking at the bottom of the ocean, he would look at the top of the ocean. Okay. So he travels to, first of all, he goes to uh, Mozambique, I believe, which is an island out in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. He doesn't find anything there. He then goes to, hang on, I'm, my notes are all screwed up. I'm going to look this guy up because I want to yeah, know what Blaine he looks like. Gibson. Blaine. Yeah. Okay, I mentioned that the Australians took up the search. And Gibson is wondering why isn't anybody looking on the shoreline. So that's where he starts looking. He went to the first anniversary event after, uh, this was in Kuala Lumpur in April, I'm sorry, March of 2015. So a year later, he shows up at the anniversary mm-hmm. gathering at the airport, I guess. Is that him? That is not him. <laughs> you should see the guy that pulls up. Not this even guy, close. This Blaine Gibson is a voice actor, yeah. and he looks like he lives in the gym, and his hair, how much conditioner does he have to use on that hair? That's, he uses a lot more uh, whatever he's using than I have to use. That hair is fabulous, but this is not the Blaine Gibson that you were talking about. Most assuredly not. When All I right, look so him up, it, it Blaine Gibson Explorer pops That's it. You have to you have to click Blaine Gibson Explorer. Explorer. If you just click For all I know Blaine he's changed Gibson his legal name to, to Blaine Gibson comma space Explorer. Explorer. Okay, so let me take a look at, at this guy. Okay. So when he gets started looking for pieces of the airplane, he doesn't really know where he's going. Like I said, he goes to Myanmar first. And he went to some villagers and he said, hey, when stuff washes up out of the ocean around here, what part of the ocean does it wash up on? So he gets some direction. He doesn't find anything, but he's looking. And then on July the 29th, 2015, 16 months after the plane has crashed, has gone missing, a six foot long piece of airfoil that turns out to be part of the trailing edge of one of the wings on MH Flight 370 turns up on a beach off of the French island of Reunion, which is about 400 miles east of Madagascar, which is about 200 miles east of the continent of Africa. So out in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So I have this picture where he is holding it with another gentleman. And I'll Now that may not be the same piece. He's found plenty of pieces. Okay. Well, I will put this on our social media. Which one is that? 
That looks about what you're talking about. That's one of the later pieces. That's one of the later pieces. Yeah. The piece that they find first is about as big as Katie's desk. Oh. Not quite as tall, but as big as, as far as the surface goes. It's part of the wing. Now, that's, that's the second piece he found. The second piece. Okay, I'm finding all kinds. You can Google this, but we'll put some of it on. Yeah, he, he's found, of all the pieces of MH okay. Flight 370 that have been found, Blaine Gibson has found about a third of them. And it's wow. in the dozens of pieces. And he's found a third of them. Wow. Or at least that's the latest just, information. Or, you may be, we may be jumping ahead, but yeah. they're just scattered up in, amongst these islands. In yeah, the it, you, there, there are maps that you can pull up that plot points of, the places where pieces have turned up and some of them are on Madagascar. Some of them worked their way around Madagascar and land on the, the mainland of Africa. Uh, the, dozens of pieces have turned up all in the same area. And there are, there are oceanographers who specialize in ocean currents and, and wind drift and have plotted, have tried to plot in reverse where these things came from and where they might have originated. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons, one of the, the ways, site. yeah, one of the ways they're trying to find the crash site, which to date has not been found as of this morning. Because when you crash into the ocean like that, you're, it's not just going to stay in one place. It's not just going to sink to the bottom and stop. Well, and that's, you're right. That's not what happened here because, or that is what happened here. It, it, it flew into a million pieces. Mm-hmm. Now there was a theory early on that he might have gently tried to, you know, like Sully did in the Hudson river and just mm-hmm. land it in one piece and let it sink. Mm-hmm. But there have been enough pieces that have turned up in these areas in the Indian ocean where experts go. Now nah, it, it hit, it hit, hit the, water. it hit the water at 600 miles an hour oh my God. and flew into a million pieces. Good gracious. And so when that piece turns up off Reunion Island mm-hmm. in July of 2015. That is when the families, if they haven't already come to the realization that they're never going to see their loved ones again, they do at that point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely confirmed to be a piece of MH370. It looks like the, the satellite information that indicated that it flew south into the Indian Ocean and flew until it ran out of fuel and then crashed mm-hmm. has turned out to be the correct information. So the families are distraught at this point. Uh, that piece of uh, the wing was called a flapperon, by the way. It's, it's about as big as for me to you, about this wide. Uh, about and it, this, this wide? About, what is this wide? This wide, it's, it's about three feet wide. Three feet wide. Yeah, okay. and as yeah. big as for me to you. So imagine- so how, how far are we sitting apart? About three feet apart. Okay, okay. Imagine a refrigerator door. Okay, okay. More or less, about right. the size of a fridge door. And it right. floated, and enough of it was sticking up out of the water that there was speculation that, that the wind- Mm-hmm. would move it faster than some other pieces, mm-hmm. which is possibly why it was the first piece that was found. Possibly. It got to land before any other pieces. Mm-hmm. Okay, so after the piece was found at Reunion Island, Gibson decides he's going to keep searching. He's going to look around some more. So he goes to the, to the island of Madagascar. Somebody has told him, he's, he's talked to these uh, oceanographers, and they say, if you want to find some more pieces, try here. Mm-hmm. Because based on our computer models, that's where stuff would go. And so Mozambique was where he ended up. Uh, it's the northeast coast of Madagascar or to Mozambique. Those are the two most likely places. So Gibson decides to go to Mozambique because he hasn't been there before. And that is his 177th country that he has visited in his life. His passport so like, is robust. Yeah, he's time. like, Madagascar, been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> So he gets to uh, Mozambique in February of 2016, and before he's been there for very long, he gets in touch with a guy who has found a piece of something, 
And that's piece number two that you showed me of a minute ago, the triangular shaped piece okay. that he and the, ge- the other gentleman yeah, about the size the, of a serving tray. And it, okay. one reason that they know that it came from flight 370 is because two, there's two reasons. Number one, it is the same shade of white that Malaysia airlines uses to paint the fuselage of its airplanes. Okay. And also because you guys have looked out the window before you fly and you see where it says no step on the wings in various places. Yes. So mm-hmm. the tech, know not to step there. Yes. There is the words no step are on this piece of the airplane. And it is the exact same font, the typeface that Malaysia uses. Okay. So, so apparently yeah, that's some... something that's different from right. airline to airline. And this is the one that they use. Gotcha. Okay. So it's pretty there, so good So there's at least some evidence to back up that this is part of this plane. Yes. So that, okay. All right. So Gibson finds another piece of the plane. Uh, he went to Madagascar again. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Three, two. In June of 2016, he went to Madagascar. And on the first day he was there, he found three more pieces of flight MH370. And a couple more a few days after that. Of course, there's a lot of debris that washes up that has nothing to do with flight MH370. But they found enough of it that it started to alter the search party. People started to actively search for pieces. And the word got out that Blaine Gibson was going to pay for these pieces. And he never paid much, more than 20 or 30 bucks for a piece. But, and he didn't want to keep them. He wanted to turn them over to the authorities so that yeah. they could start to piece together what had happened. Mm-hmm. Sure. He was really just a genuine, not in it for himself at all. But I like to travel and I'm familiar with with travel and and, and he's so, interested, obviously. And yeah. I've got nothing else to do, and I'm interested in this, and so I'm mm-hmm. going to go see what I can find out. All right. I mean, I, I'm not hating on. Yeah, and he's and one of the reasons that Gibson is looking. He's thinking that maybe some piece of the uh, of the fuselage or some piece of the plane will have. Uh, maybe there's some burnt wiring that would indicate that the something happened in the electrical system of the plane, or maybe there's a there's a smattering of shrapnel on a piece that would indicate that maybe a missile exploded near it. Yeah, he's trying to get to the bottom he's of trying what trying to find happened. out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's painfully obvious now that the plane flew for six hours after even the Malaysian Air Force knew where it was. It flew for six more hours after that. It's just hop, bebopping around. And you just wonder yeah. if, the, if the people on board just thought they were just flying where they were supposed to. The people on board had probably been dead the whole time. What? <gasps> what? We will get to that. Okay. So there, there were three investigations. After, after we got past the South China Sea, there are three different investigations. And just briefly to describe the three different types of investigations that were going on simultaneously. The first was the big search, the Australian-led underwater search. It ended up costing the Aussies $160 million Dang. before they gave up. Yeah. In 2018. Well, they gave it a go. Yeah, they, they sure did. Uh, there, the second investigation was uh, performed by the Malaysian police, and they performed background checks on everybody, every passenger on the plane, and every member of the flight crew. What did they discover? They discovered that, well, the primary thing that they discovered was that there were two people on the plane who were flying with stolen passports. And they were both Iranians. Mm -hmm. But it turned out after some investigation that there was nothing nefarious there except for the fact that these two Iranians were trying to uh, immigrate 
to Germany. And they had come across these two stolen passports, and that's how they bought their one-way tickets. How do you even get that through in 2015? When the, when the passports had been reported stolen, one was stolen from Italy, I know, and the other, I think, was Spanish. They had been reported stolen and had been put into the computer database so that they would pop up if anybody punched their numbers in or scanned them or whatever, but nobody ever did, including the day that these two guys got on flight MH370. Incompetence. Yeah. Wow. Come on. So would they do not scan the passports? They just said go get on the plane? Apparently, maybe when they handed over the passport, they handed over a thousand dollars and Uh-oh. somebody turned their head the other way. I, we it don't know that. Nobody's admitting it. In yeah. the ass if you lose your passport. Big time. Like I thought mm-hmm. I lost mine one time and went on thinking I could just like reorder like you do your driver's license. Yeah. And, no. Mm-hmm. No, like you have to start over. No, you no, you can't do that. Yeah, it's a, it's. I was like, okay, no, I didn't lose it. Let me keep looking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. find it. Yeah, that's the answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give you guys. So, it, uh, wh- so they don't think that these two folks had anything to do with the, correct the crash, and that was plane. that's investigation number two. So they're trying to figure okay. out who was on the plane, what might have happened there. All right. All right. And okay. So. I mean, I don't out. know. Yeah. Are we sure they're not responsible for anything? Not, um, reasonably. Okay. Okay. Right, and I'm going to hand this. I'm through with this page. I'm through with this page of my notes. So I'm going to hand this to you guys so that you guys can see the flight path. Okay. okay. So just th- that way you can see a little bit better what it is that I'm talking about. The third investigation was an accident inquiry, which was not intended to adjudicate liability. But to just find out what probably most likely happened to the airplane, damn it. We just, we don't know. And this investigation number three is trying to figure out what happened. And it's, this investigation is a screw up from the, from the very beginning. The Malaysian police and government don't want to get involved in it because they see it as a risk because they're afraid that it's going to show some level of incompetence either on their air, from their air traffic controllers or the military or somebody. It's, if, if this investigation really gets to the bottom of what happened, it's going to make Malaysia look bad. Well, it does. It, yeah, it already yeah. kind of does. Well, so they're going to try to hamstring this investigation any and every way they can because of that. And it ends up looking like a cover-up to conspiracy nuts, but it's really just because the Malaysians are inept and incompetent Mm. Or at least they were in this case, and they're trying to hide their failures. Yeah, that's what it seems like to yeah to it, rationalize it, it, with common because sense. Because people automatically think there's a what's going on here. Yeah, there's something fishy going on. Yeah, so that investigation ends in 2018. It produces a 495 page report that basically whitewashes the entire thing. And it blames, sure enough, it blames most of the things on the air traffic controllers because in Malaysia, they're the easiest political group to malign. They have the least uh, authority and least political influence. So let's throw the air traffic controllers under the bus because they can't do anything about it. We'll just blame them and hopefully this will all go away. Well, they were incompetent because when Vietnam got back to them, First of all, Vietnam took too long. Yeah, 18 minutes instead of five but, minutes. But really, 18 minutes yeah. versus five minutes, okay, right. all right. Sure. It's the middle of the night. You, they get back to Malaysia. They wait four hours mm-hmm. before they do anything. So, yes, they were incompetent. But in the meantime, the military's watching it go across. The Malaysian military right. 
is they're watching it go across a yeah. screen and they don't do They're on territory. Either. It's turned around and come back over land. And they don't do anything either. No. They they watch it go off of the edge of their radar screen and, and is that don't tr- tell anybody. Is that truly incompetence or did someone say don't mention this? That's a great question. Did someone Somebody higher up say, you didn't see anything. You didn't see anything. Yeah. I don't know. What is going on? We don't know. Now, if you guys want to find out a little bit more about it, Katie and I talked about this last week. There's a three-part Netflix series called MH370, The Flight That Disappeared. I'm watching it. I'm watching it today. It's three parts. And they're going to break down a lot of these uh, conspiracy theories. They talk to some of the... Uh, family members of the folks who were on the plane. It's very in-depth, and it's the latest thing that you can find just about it. It came out in March of this year. I was about to say, it's not old. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it it came out on the ninth anniversary, Mm -hmm. which was in March of this year. Uh, One of the guys, there's a New York-based aeronautical journalist named Jeff Wise, who features prominently in that three-part series, and I'll let you guys find that out for yourself. But he did a lot of research, and he's got some some theories that aren't kooky, and he's okay. got some that are. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, Blaine Gibson, in the meantime, started to receive death threats on social media. He doesn't even get on social media anymore because of all of the death threats that he got because he's just going around trying to find out what happened to MH370. But maybe in Malaysia, they don't want their uh, their countrymen maligned. The mm. air crew or the pilots or the air traffic controllers or just in general, you're making, you're making Malaysia look bad, go home, mm. that kind of thing. Uh, and so he doesn't get on the internet anymore. You know what? It's a good practice. For yeah, I, I, I don't blame him. Good for not, him. Not bad. He doesn't even talk about his travel plans anymore. He changes the SIM cards in his phones all of the time. Or at least he did a couple of years ago when this yeah. information was, uh, was brand but new. Why are, they, why are they going so far? I mean, to threaten the guy who's really just trying to find... I mean, is it really to mask incompetence or is it not? Well, it it's going to turn out, I think, that that's the best explanation mm-hmm. for why all of this subterfuge is going on and all of this uh, stop looking here, no turn around and go away. And there are some conspiracy theories. There are some possibilities, at least uh, three or four of them. And we will talk about some of those right after this word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by A&W Outdoor Services. You know, they're located right here in Cherokee County, and I called Alan myself just a few weeks ago, and he and his crew came out to my house, pressure washed the whole thing. It looks brand new. Well, as brand new as my house can possibly look after 25 years. But all I did was call Alan at 256-706-7964. He and the guys showed up and cleaned up everything. It looked fantastic. The pollen has fallen a little bit since then. So if you haven't done this already, now's the perfect time to call Alan and A&W Outdoor Services at 256-706-7964 and let them do for you what they've already done for me. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Wise Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds, and they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. 
So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. Are you in the market for a full-time Weiss Lake home or recreational lot? Let Trini Davis and Elizabeth Powell put their all-star property group at Keller Williams Realty to work for you. Trini and Elizabeth are locals themselves, so they know the Weiss Lake area, and with over 40 years of experience, they're professional listing and buying agents, talented home stagers and photographers, and specialized marketing team will work to make your lakefront dreams come true. Check out the Keller Williams team on Facebook at All Star Property Rome. You can also visit at All Star Property Rome to browse their images on Instagram or give them a call at 706-844-7493. That's the All Star Property Group with Keller Williams Realty at 706-844-7493. You can hit pause, call them now, and make your Weiss Lake dreams a reality. And thank you to all our lovely sponsors. All right, Scott, where are we going from here? Okay, so we were talking during the break. Kelly, you had a question about why all the focus on Blaine Gibson. Yeah, I mean, you've explained away your incompetence. You, you've you blamed it on the air traffic control, wash your hands of it, and it's good. Why use all this energy to threaten Blaine Gibson? Well, the, but one of the reasons I think is because he is hitting closer to home than anybody cares for him to hit so far. Because if he's finding pieces in the Indian Ocean that are 100% part of MH370, then that means that all of the things that happened between the time the plane left Kuala Lumpur and the time it disappeared from radar, that all must have actually happened the way that it did. So the plane's not in the South China Sea. It has taken this reverse route and turned south and flown down into the Indian Ocean because how else do you find the pieces of the plane in the place where they would have washed up based on ocean, ocean, ocean shit. Oceanography. Thank you. Uh, you know, and just studying how the waves work and the tides and the currents work in that part of the world. So then they have to admit that their military. Flubbed it. Was incompetent and then didn't say anything while they let the search continue. 38 planes and and ships from multiple nations. Well, Australia, Australia didn't start until they They gave up the ghost on the South China Sea. Okay. So, and then the Aussies got involved. I don't know. It just still Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Well, but here's more suspicious, Scott. Here's the thing. Well, here, here we go. Okay. It has become obvious to just about everybody that whatever happened to flight MH370 was a crime. Yes. There's no chance anymore that this was an accident, that something in the cargo hold exploded, Mm -hmm. that a meteorite hit it, that it was an act of God, a bolt of lightning. Uh, The plane just blew up spontaneously in the sky. Somebody purposely planned and perpetrated what is starting to look like at least 238 cases of mass murder. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. This is a mass murder. There's 239 people on the plane. Mm-hmm. Starting to look like 238 counts of mass murder and one count of suicide. But now, are you going to get into that cliffhanger you threw us earlier that you think they were already dead before the crash? Yes. Okay. Because I can't quit thinking about that. Mm-mm. Me neither. So there are a bunch of theories that we could go into. I'm just going to, boil it down to the one that 
everybody has pretty much settled on. And we'll talk about some of the others if you guys bring them up or, or if, if we stumble across them in my notes. But basically, the only thing that would explain the flight path of the airplane after it disappeared in the middle of the South China Sea is if someone manually turned off those transponders, mm-hmm. turned off the autopilot, and took manual control of the airplane. Because for one thing, one of the turns that the plane made after it disappeared from radar, mm-hmm. from the initial radar, it was still on the Malaysian military radar, but it, the turn that it took was too steep. Even if you punch those headings into the autopilot, the autopilot would take a much more gradual turn to reach that heading. When this turn took place, it was very steep and very sharp, not in a way that the autopilot would ever fly the plane. Mm-hmm. So somebody manually did that mm-hmm. from the cockpit, mm-hmm. turned the plane in that direction. I think about those nine eleven planes every time when you think about how abruptly yeah. it's flying into that tower and it turns on its side. Yeah, how quickly? Yeah, Ugh. that kind of it's that kind of extreme turn. It wouldn't have hurt anybody in the cockpit or in the fuselage necessarily. Any of the passengers. You know, you might have felt a couple of G's being pressed down in your seat, but still a lot more steep turn. Think about the turns that you have taken in a commercial airliner. You don't even realize the plane is turning until the light changes in the window. Mm -hmm. You know, when the sunlight starts to change. So it wasn't one of those. Mm -hmm. It was steep. Yes. Sharp. So the only thing that the people in the cabin would have noticed at this point, let's, let's assume that everything's been shut off in the cabin. The electronics don't work. The lights are out. The next thing the pilot is going to do is, or whoever is stealing this plane, is turn off the pressurization system in the airplane. Oh. Oh. And they're at 35,000 feet. So the next thing that's going to happen is, whoever's in the cockpit doing that is going to grab his oxygen mask that has about four hours worth of oxygen, and there are four of those Mm -hmm. in the cockpit. At the same time, all of the little masks are going to drop down in the cabin of the plane. Mm -hmm. And those each have about 15 minutes of air Mm. in them. They're not designed to last for a long time. What happens in a normal situation when a plane, when the cabin gets depressurized, the masks drop down, Mm -hmm. the pilots put their masks on, and then they immediately drop the plane down below 13,000 feet where you can can breathe breathe. normally. Mm -hmm. And you can do that in less than 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. which is why there's only 15 minutes of air Mm -hmm. in those for the passengers. Right. Right. And of course, the pilot knows this. So if the pilot depressurizes the airplane, in 20 minutes, he's got a cabin full of dead people a plane full of dead people, and he's of, the only of, person still alive. Of suffocated to death people. Yes, that's correct. And that's not fast. And so, well, it's, oh not, it's, it's not painful. But it's not fast. You just go to sleep, and in about 10 or 15 minutes, there's no gasping. You're not turning blue, according to what I've read. You just, oh. you go to sleep, mm-hmm. and oh. you never wake up again. Oh. So, Nobody on that plane ever sent a text message. Nobody ever answered a phone. Everybody on that plane, something happened to all of them at once. Like we so didn't was have no, any of those nine eleven right phone the calls, calls and the texts, right? Anything. So there, there was, was no, none of that. And this no is SOS. This is thirteen years after nine eleven. So anytime you're on an airplane, mm-hmm. I would, I would think, and I hope I never find out firsthand. And it starts to look like everything's going south. 
Mm-hmm. You're going to text somebody, hey, what's going on? I'm on well, MH370. Something's mm-hmm. crazy up here. You know, None now, of that ever happened. Have you seen those videos? This has happened a few times recently where planes have just had sudden drops. Mm-hmm. And people were, I mean, people are quick enough on their phones now. They video that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's on TikTok. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I, I never I've take my seatbelt off. I've been on one that, that had a drop like I that. It wasn't have. a major, but it was. It was a little unsettling, but little there was a storm. And top of the roller coaster type it was kind feeling of, in your yeah, stomach. Yes. Right. Yes. And it was just, and there was, I think, someone on the plane who kind of went, ah, you know, really quickly or right. something like that. Yeah. But it just kind of felt that way. But mm-hmm. it was quick and it was over. And we were in a storm. So yeah. it, it wasn't. I also want to bring up this point. If you have a pilot, let's say you have a pilot, and and we're assuming it was one of the pilots. We're not assuming that um, it was a passenger, but it could have been, I guess, if they knew enough about flying and they took over, could get into the cockpit and could get in if you could get get in in. because they've all got the reinforced doors with the Mm -hmm. with the steel locks. So I've got a couple things I want to talk about. First of all, if if this is a suicide mass murder. Think about how committed you are to ending your life Mm -hmm. and how long you sit there and you think about it. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that people can plan ending their own life for months, whatever, but you're up there and you fly for four hours, six hours, alone with, plane, with your thoughts, alone with your thoughts, at a plane full of dead people. Yeah, Mm-mm. and you Not do it long that ago. long. Is 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 the person truly trying to get to the point where they can just poof, that plane? Or, but it, but it would seem they they uh, they ran it out of fuel so it would yeah crash. Why not just turn it and crash it right then? That's a great I mean, question. Why? That's a long time to say, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm yeah. doing this. And which, what happened with the other pilot? Well, just, that's what nobody knows. Because when you talk to people who have survived a suicide attempt, mm-hmm. the, one of the first things that they say is they immediately, immediately regretted their decision. The guy who jumped off the bridge right. and he said, holy shit, what was I thinking? he hit the ground, he had changed his mind. Yeah. So, yeah. F- four, six hours? Seems like a long time to have second thoughts. I don't know. That's a, strange to a, me. A lot of suicide decisions don't have a six hour wait period. No. Right. I don't think so. But yeah. also, yeah. after I mean, you've killed yeah. all those people, how is then you're going stuck. Back? There's no going yeah. back. Yeah, there's no going back. Then you're mm-hmm. stuck. Then you're, but then but it seems like you would just fly the point well, to the ocean and go at that point. You know, I told you guys about that 495-page investigation mm-hmm. uh, about what led to the cause of the crash. Nobody was satisfied with what it said about the pilot, Zahari, because it was pretty much a wash. The, the, the report said everything was fine with Zahari. Uh, he was a family man. Is this the older gentleman? This is the 53-year-old okay. Senior pilot. And everybody thinks that it probably was him because the young guy, he was about to get married. Mm -hmm. He was about to start his career. Mm -hmm. 
And so he had this flight left he, and he was... And he was going to be a pilot himself. So, yeah, so he either got, sense. you know, the speculation is he either got clunked over the head and dragged outside and, and suffocated with everyone else. Or mm-hmm. maybe Zahari said, hey, I need you to go check something for me, new guy. Mm-hmm. Go to the back and see what the buzzing blue light is. And then you also And then he have, locked the door behind him. And then you also have the flight crew. Yeah. And you got the flight crew out there who can get in the cockpit, right? Can they you get in the cockpit? You can. Uh, but apparently there is a way for the pilot inside the cockpit to change the combination on the keypad outside. So it, but, but I'm okay. So I'll go to back prevent to terrorism. Maybe if they've right. got a gun to right. the stewardess's head, right. I've but changed the number. She doesn't know it anymore. I also go back to the fact that no text messages or phone calls went out. Right. So if I'm on this plane and the flight crew start panicking, Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like the flight crew. With the flight crew. The flight crew's not going to panic. They're going to when they see the when they see the 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 oxygen masks come down. Mm-hmm. They're going to run around the the cockpit or the the fuselage, getting everybody's gas masks on. Mm-hmm. Right. I assume that's a standard operating procedure for when those are they going- masks drop, and then they put their own gas masks on and sit in their seats in the in the galleyways. Mm-hmm. And then they pass out eventually from lack of oxygen, just like everybody else. Do we think that's when he turned the plane? Yes. Because if he turned the plane before then, the flight crew is going to recognize that. I, he, he, he turned the plane the first time before he could have done any of the rest because it takes about 20 minutes for everybody on the plane to suffocate. So what's the flight crew saying at the time? That's, that's my, my second question. I don't, is- I, don't, I don't think a flight crew is necessarily... Uh, they don't know any more information about okay. where a plane is going than you or I do if we're passengers. Okay. They assume that the guys in the front know what the hell's going on. Okay. All right. So to this pilot, mm-hmm. what was his name? Zahari? Zahari. Zahari. What do we know about him? Other than, I know you said he's a family man, right. but I mean, digging a little deeper, what do we know about well, him? Well, Zahari Ahmad Shaw is 53 years old. The day before this flight left, his wife and children left him. Oh. On that very same day, Zahari was very politically active in Malaysia. And the guy, the opposition political leader that he supported had been arrested the day before. Mm-hmm. He had had a, a previous conviction that had been overturned, but the Supreme Court reversed okay. that legal decision and he had to go back to jail again and I forget his name I wrote it down but I forgot it but both of those things happened the day before flight MH370 left the ground mm. I think we just solved this one other thing that happened after that first turn that led flight 370 across the Malaysian peninsula there is an island off the coast of the the western coast of Malaysia called Penang okay. and that is where Zahari was from Okay, that was his area where he lived. It was not, wasn't too far from Kuala Lumpur, but it was a nice residential resort area. Mm-hmm. The last turn that the plane makes before its big turn is a big, wide, sweeping turn around Penang. And there have been people who have speculated, pilots, who said he just wanted to see where he one was from look. one last time. One last look. On the wow. way around. Yeah. Speculation, we'll never know, but it just this big, Same. wide, sweeping turn mm-hmm. around, around his home island. island. Yeah. yeah, I think I think Scott, we yeah, we know, right? Yeah, and so uh, so everything started at 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 twenty after one, mm-hmm. right? At one thirty minutes later, at one fifty two, that's when the plane flew just to the south of Penang Island. 
and took its big, wide turn. And at the same moment, the assistant pilot, the co-pilot's cell phone, pinged on a cell phone tower on the island. No transmission of information, but it it made a connection with mm-hmm. the cell phone tower. And then it was immediately lost again, but that was discovered later. Mm-hmm. Just another dot in this point that sure, we shows the where the plane was. was, right. At 2.25, so this is about 45 minutes after the process to suffocate possibly everyone on the plane has begun, and that takes about 20 minutes. So they're dead. So they're an extra, dead. an extra 20 minutes, and then suddenly, the airplane's electronics come back to life. The satellite box comes back on. Oh, okay. It's likely at this point the full electrical system was brought back up and that the airplane was repressurized. Return to a normal temperature. So he could fly with air. Correct. Not have to have the mask on. Not have to have the mask on anymore. Uh, And the first thing that happened when the electricity in the plane was recycled, it rebooted every computer on the thing, but he's got all the computers that he knows about turned off. Mm -hmm. But that satellite, it's called Inmarsat, doesn't matter, but it rebooted Mm -hmm. and it sent out another handshake to the satellite over the Indian Ocean and said, hey, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. That was at 225. And the plane crashed just under six hours later. So that's the six-hour period from the first handshake from the Inmarsat to the last one. And I mentioned that earlier where it's telling the satellite, hey, uh, the motor stopped running. We're out of fuel. Six hours. You flew six more hours. And plenty of speculation. Like I said, uh, there are terrorists. How about that? Yeah, but there was such a narrow window between... the time that Malaysia handed off to Vietnam and that's when everything got cut off and when everything happened, a very narrow window for somebody who is a third party terrorist to figure out when to attack. And terrorists don't typically crash them in the ocean. They wouldn't do it without a reason, right? They They want want a reason. They want to take credit for it. They want to claim it. And they usually, as we unfortunately know here, don't crash it in the ocean. Right. Yeah. No one has claimed responsibility for the act to this day. Yeah. Now, I saw one uh, speculation that was, well, if something went wrong, they ended up losing the plane. Maybe they intended to land it somewhere. And when the plane crashed, they said, okay, we didn't do it. Mum's I mean, the word. Possibility. Yeah, but, certainly. But this. But everything points, at this point, everything is pointing to the captain. Yeah. Right? And it's happened before, it turns out. Uh, there were four other documented instances of a pilot crashing the plane in a murder-suicide and killing everybody on board. Uh, 1997, a Silk Airlines flight. Uh, 1999, an Egypt, an Egypt Air flight. What was that first one again? It was a Silk Air. What is it's Silk a, that's Air? That's Singaporean airline. So it happened over in that part of the world, too, in okay. Asia. Okay, all right. Um, Egyptian Air 990, that was in 1999. Ooh. That was off the coast of Long Island, purposely crashed into uh, the water and killed everybody on board. A Mozambique Airlines flight in 2013, just months before this happened. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, in March of 2015, there was a flight, a German Wings airliner flew into the French Alps and killed everybody on board. And that was determined to be a murder-suicide because uh, the co-pilot waited for the pilot to leave the cabin to go to the men's room and then he locked the door behind him and crashed the plane. 
And he had studied what happened to MH370. Mm-hmm. It was discovered in his okay. notes and his computers and his phones and whatever to figure out how that happened so he would know what to do. Mm. At least that's the speculation. We need better mental health care for our pilots. Something. It surely would sound that way. The world, the whole world. Oh, so it, yeah, yeah, not just the U.S. I mean, yeah. not, it sounds like these are not U.S. pilots, but so it turned out that a lot of those things that that uh, that I said about Zahari, that's not speculation. That turned out to be true. There was some some further investigation after the whitewash that was the 495 page official report mm-hmm. that didn't blame anybody in the cockpit for anything that happened. They said we don't know what happened. That was their final uh, result. Was we don't know what happened. So they're trying to protect him. They're trying to protect maybe Zahari himself. You've got to figure that you've got a flight with 239 people on it, and Zahari's a Muslim, and so there may be some concern that it was a religious, yeah. uh, you know, oh, yeah, something yeah, like that. So yeah. you got to figure the Malaysia. Malaysia is about 60% uh, uh, Muslim. Muslim, thank you. Uh, the word left me. So about 60% Muslim in Malaysia. Uh, and the government's corrupt. They're suspicious of their neighbors. They, they're suspicious of working with anybody else. And all these other nations from around the world are coming to try to help them. Mm-hmm. And they're not, none of them are staying around for very long because they're realizing right away the Malaysians don't want our help. They just want this to go away. Mm-hmm. They don't want to know what happened. Mm. It's terrible. They've called off the search. Uh, there's one interview that I saw with the defense minister. Mm-hmm. who's actually laughing into the camera during an interview with a news organization when they say, why didn't you send an Air Force fighter jet when, when you saw it on Malaysian Air Force radar? Why didn't you send a jet up to see what was going on? And the guy laughed into the camera. And he said, I'm not going to shoot it down. Why would I go up there? Think about how much trouble I would be in if I'd gone up there and we'd shut the plane down. You think I'm in trouble now? Think about if that had happened. Mm. And of course, you know, just to find out if, if you remember when Payne Stewart, the golfer, Died in 1999. They were in a in a plane that uh, it was a hypoxia event. The plane lost cabin pressure, and nobody knew it. And everybody passed out and died. And the plane's just coasting across the United States from one end to the other until it finally crashes. But what we did, the Americans, we sent up a fighter jet, and we could look into the cockpit and see the pilot slumped over. So what did we do? Followed it until it crashed. Oh. But would have would we have intervened if if it was going to crash? Well, on? what you know by I mean, doing what, do you what do with that? well by what the Air Force did, at least they know that it's not a terrorism event. They know yeah. that somebody's not going to try to fly the plane into the Pentagon or the White House or the Capitol building. And then all they can do is hope that where it crashes, that it. Doesn't I mean, if hurt it's headed for, a, I guess you can figure out at the rate of drop and the speed and how much fuel it's got. Okay, it's going to crash into the Pacific Ocean in an hour. So, we're so not let's gonna, just hang hang with it. Let it go. If it's going to crash into downtown L.A., well, we got to we got to shoot, shoot it, down. it down. Yeah, right. But that's what Malaysia did not do. No, none of that. The things flying back towards Kuala Lumpur, which has two of the tallest buildings in the world, mm-hmm. uh, the the Petronas Towers, one of the tallest, and it's two identical structures side by side. They're round instead of square, like the World Trade Center was. Mm-hmm. But they're connected by walking towers at like the fiftieth floor and the hundredth floor, and it's. Uh, Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones were in a movie. It's mm-hmm. 20 years old now, but it was a spy thing, and it was mm-hmm. centered around those towers right after they opened. It was on mm-hmm. purpose to show the world the new Patronus Towers. I think I'm saying that right. Is it Patronus Towers? I have no idea. Anyway, I'm learning this from Anyway, you. it's one of the tallest buildings in the world, and you would think that if there's a 
777 loaded down with jet fuel headed right towards it, or just generally towards it. Somebody might want to make sure that it's not headed right there. Well, that would all but also almost rule out a terrorist, too, because they had the opportunity to sure. fly right into those. Yeah. As, was- as the evidence starts to stack up, they learn yeah. as much from what this is not. Yeah. As yeah. they learn from what it turns out to well, most likely and be. Back to those towers, I can tell you that I'm not going to use the crosswalk at 50 floors, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to use it at 100. Yeah. So uh, one other that. thing I forgot to tell you guys about uh, Pilot Zahari. Mm-hmm. When they got to his house, they found a very elaborate flight simulator in the basement, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. A lot of other pilots who have been interviewed in the documentaries that I've watched said, pilots love to fly, and you can't fly mm-hmm. all day every day. So even if it's your day off or your week off, it's still not uncommon. Maybe you're going to fly a new route next month, and you want to load it into the simulator and see what it looks like. And Well, it turns out that one of the many hundreds of flights that Zahari flew on his simulator and then deleted was one that almost exactly matched the flight path of flight MH370 out into the middle of the Indian Ocean to no end. Yeah. The FBI found that out. It had been deleted, but the FBI got a hold of his hard drive and they were able to piece it back together Mm -hmm. and learn that that was what happened. One of the things that happened. I will never understand why take all of these people with you. I I don't either. I don't either. Uh, There was... uh, the author of one of the stories that I read about it interviewed one of Zahari's lifelong friends, another 777 captain working for Malaysia Airlines, who begrudgingly said, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that he did it. It doesn't sound like the man that I know, but all of the evidence points to this is what most likely happened. So and so this, this story that started out as a pyramid with this big, broad base, it could have been a thousand different things. Mm-hmm. When you get to the very tip top, there's yeah. one guy standing at the top of this pyramid and it's unfortunately it's like he had some serious life events to happen yeah oh in addition to the fact that his wife and children had left him he was supposedly involved in a relationship with another woman his marriage was already on the rocks so they were moving along maybe that's why the wife left him yeah so he's with he's in a relationship with another woman and he's gotten very attached to this woman's three children and right before he got on the plane that day, there was a phone call that he received from a woman, but nobody knows who it was or what it was about. Now, obviously, he didn't plan all of this in the 30 minutes between the time he got that phone call and the time yeah. his flight left. But maybe that was just one more link in the chain that eventually dragged him down to the bottom of the ocean and yeah. 238 other people with him. So it appears. But he had simulated this, so he, he was planning to do it at some point, so... Maybe if that call had gone differently, he might not have done this Maybe. particular time at, at this point. But he was yeah, he'd had it percolating for a month or two. Yeah, he was preparing to do it at some point. Damn it, today yeah. that's that's it. That phone call is that the last it. straw. We're doing it today. Oh my we'll never know. And uh, how do you train pilots to deal with this? How do you train anybody to deal with this? If you're an airline company, I don't know. And you have this issue. How do you how do you train your other pilots? Look, if you're if the pilot or your co pilot is starting to act a certain way, yeah. what mm-hmm. do you? I mean, what do you do? I, I don't know what you do because you, you pilot, think you're wrong until it's too late, right? Yeah. If you're the pilot who steps into the bathroom and your co pilot grabs a hold of the plane, mm-hmm. what, what what can you do with that? Yeah. Is there a way to for him to? Come out of the bathroom and, but it, I guess he didn't have time. 
I wow. Didn't, didn't suspect what was going on no, until it was too late. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a push on in Australia right now to, to start the search up again. There's been some new information. Some new technology has come to light. Uh, people who use shortwave radio to communicate with each other around the world. Mm-hmm. There's somehow shortwave radio technology. The, the frequency of those radio waves has shown uh, back on March the 8th, 2014, an interruption all the way down. Just another way to refine that exact flight path and maybe get to the bottom of where MH370 ended up. Now, if they find it at this point, all that they're going to find is maybe some maybe some personal communications devices that will have some photos on it. Maybe if something happened in the cockpit in those few minutes between the time we think everybody was conscious and when they were dead. Yeah. Um, you'll find the two black boxes, but one of them is only going to have the last two hours of cockpit voice recordings, which is just going to be probably alerts and alarms buzzing in the last few seconds to tell whoever's in the cockpit who's supposed to be flying the plane, hey, you're about to crash into the ocean at 600 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And the other one is the flight data recorder, which would show when things got turned off and turned back on, but all that that information would do at this point would be to... uh, to reinforce the most likely scenario based on the evidence that we have. But we don't know. They may find the damn thing in an aircraft hangar in Kazakhstan. Well, I just wonder if they find this black box with the recording, if they would get some sort of, maybe, was he talking to himself? Was he, was he? That, maybe. Know, ram, the maybe he's singing all the, the way down. Or maybe he's, yeah. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Or maybe he, there's another uh, speculation that he, when he knew that he had 15 or 20 minutes left, he just depressurized the cabin again and went to sleep himself. Went to sleep himself. No. Or that maybe he screamed bloody murder and pushed the stick forward and, and howled all the way to the ground. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And went out literally in a blaze of glory. Oh my goodness. But we don't know yet. And uh, I hope that I didn't create more confusion nope, than already no, existed really on that didn't. topic. But uh, there's only know. one theory I agree with. What? And that's that he did it. Yeah. It's certainly, everything points to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it looks like, and like, it's, like we said, it's happened before a few times. Mm-hmm. Nothing else makes sense. The, the big pass over his home Island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that nobody in the cockpit or nobody in the, in the airplane ever sent any sort of text message or communication. Nothing like that happened. So obviously those people in the back weren't alive and up and about just content to watch whatever movie was on the headset in front of them Mm-mm, or the headrest no. in front of them for yeah. six hours. And the, and wondering the what the hell crew, was going they're on. all out because yeah. they would, you know, at some point be trying would, to intervene. You would think that somebody would yeah. try to do something. but and the, co- the co-pilot was obviously incapacitated yeah. in some form. Yeah, he was an underling and, and I saw it somewhere explained that you know, the, the first officer would never question anything that his trainer, instructor, pilot, twice his age, would tell him to do. Right. I think he would have questioned at some point. Well, I mean, anything logical. Yeah. You know, hey, go into the back and check I think this. He was and then lock the door behind him. But even if he had done that, he's making a stink about what's going on. He's knocking on the door. He's, and no one's reporting anything well, like this happening. What if it was the banging on the door when the pilot said, all right, this has gone on as long as it can? depressurize and then he's got in 15 minutes he knows that but in 15 minutes wouldn't you think people would have gotten on a phone 
in 15 minutes and maybe, said... So maybe he hit the switch as soon as the I guy... Couldn't. As soon as the door shut behind him. I mean, I guess he could have. He could have done all that, yeah. That's but true. I mean, still, I see what you mean because uh, if I'm the co-pilot and I'm walking down the middle of the airplane and all of a sudden all the, the gas masks fall from the ceiling, mm-hmm. I'm going to think, well, shit, maybe I need to get back up to the... And then you go back up there the and it's locked yeah. and you can't get in. Yeah, but he knocked him out. Because then he's going to wheel around and, and tell the... Or I'm going to... I'm going to wheel around and I'm going to tell, we have a problem. Somebody get a phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I don't know. It's just one of those things. I we'll never know. And they will, they're going to find it. One of these days they will fly, find what is left of flight MH370. Think about it. It took, how long did it take to find the Titanic? 73 years. Good Lord. Yeah. And, and it, was, uh, it sunk and in 12 even, and they found it in 85. Let's not even talk about the most recent Titanic thing that, uh. that, Oh yeah. I mean that yeah. look, look, the it's cursed. Yeah. It always has been. Mm-hmm. And it always will be. Just let, let it let it stay buried. Yeah. Let it stay down there. Well, they'll find what's left of it. Maybe or maybe they won't. I mean it's in such a an it's in such an inhospitable portion of the globe. Yeah, I was talking about the Titanic being cursed. I know. But this plane, yeah. I really hope they yeah. I, I would love to know what's what's going on with that, but I hope they keep trying to figure that out, but public service announcement, guys. Yeah. So leave the Titanic yeah. alone. And just one last thing to think about. If, if this tragedy for Malaysia Airlines wasn't bad enough, four months later, uh, MH Flight 17, I believe it was, was shot down over uh, Eastern Europe, over Ukraine. 298 people died just four months later. What Why? was it shot down for you? Uh, that was the Russian military. Crimea had just been annexed and invaded. That was a portion of Ukraine that has been under Russia control since 14. Mm-hmm. But the battle was going on at the time. And uh, that was Russian uh, military uh, uh, specialists who thought it was a bad guy and shot it down with a missile. And that killed an almost full 777 because there, there was 298 people. And that was a that Malaysian crash. flight too? That was also Malaysian Airlines. Malaysia Airlines. <clears throat> so. Goodness. All right. That's all I've got, guys. Woo, Scott. That was a, that was a rough one. That's, that's terrifying. Yeah. Because we've all flown. I can't imagine. Yeah. No. And you're a nervous flyer anyway. Ugh. I can't imagine you. I'm asleep on that plane, so I never know until that air mask comes down and I got to put it on. I don't, right. I don't know what's going on. I mean, you're terrified now, or she's got to fly. I don't know if I will ever fly again. Don't wanna, yeah, I never like to fly anyway, but if you're going to yeah. go, like we said last week, if you want to go somewhere, you have to fly. But mm-hmm. ugh, I, don't I don't love flying, but I also don't mind it, yeah. I, I guess. I'm just yeah. sort of, uh, whatever. I, I sleep. I don't like airports. I can sleep. See, I don't mind airports. I don't like airports. I don't either. I don't. I don't hate them, but I don't love them. And it's mm-hmm. some food that I don't get a chance to try. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. some some cool things in the uh, in the food court usually. But yeah. uh, hey, don't forget to say something mm-hmm. nice about us here at True Crime on Easy Street. Check us out on uh, the internet. Uh, mm-hmm. Go to Facebook. Sure. We're on Twitter mm-hmm. and, or whatever the hell they call it. Now. I don't know what and we're Instagram X X whatever it's called. And uh, say something nice about us on your uh, podcast platform of choice. Leave us a five star review. And leave your name so that we can give you a shout out Mm -hmm. on a future episode of the show. Great job today, Scott. Is that it? Are we done? We're done. Good night, everybody.